Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession this new $10 scratch off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of domestic abuse, murder, racially charged language, and other adult content. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Early in the morning on March 3, 1991, Los Angeles police pulled over 25-year-old Rodney King, who was suspected of drunk driving. According to their testimony, he resisted arrest and they responded with force, striking him with nightsticks more than 50 times, fracturing his skull. But a bystander, George Holliday, filmed the entire confrontation. In days, the tape of the vicious beating was broadcast on Los Angeles's KTLA and then across the nation. Almost two weeks later, on March 15th, four officers were charged with excessive force, assault with a deadly weapon, and filing false police reports. A subsequent internal investigation returned countless additional incidents in which the LAPD were needlessly brutal during arrests, especially the arrests of black suspects. Nevertheless, on April 29, 1992, all four officers were acquitted on all charges. The people were outraged. At 5.30 that night, riots broke out in the streets of Los Angeles. Motorists were pulled from their cars and beaten senseless. Buildings were firebombed and burned to the ground. Governor Pete Wilson declared a state of emergency. For many black Angelinos, the Rodney King riots were the culmination of years of police oppression. For too long, they'd been profiled, beaten, arrested, and killed with impunity by the LAPD. Finally, they were taking back their power, and from then on, they'd push back any time a black citizen was mistreated by the police. Two years after the riots, beloved black celebrity O.J. Simpson was arrested for the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman. One of O.J.'s lawyers, Johnny Cochran, insisted on his client's innocence. He wasn't a murderer. He was just one more black man done wrong by racist cops. 
How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. For the past 36 weeks, we've looked at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. This will be our last episode before a hiatus, but we're grateful for all our listeners who have tuned in, emailed, tweeted, and otherwise shown their support. We really appreciate the way you've followed us through complicated cases involving shocking courtroom confessions, startling evidence unveilings, and unexpected acquittals. You'll still be able to find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we followed the police investigation of Nicole Brown Simpson's and Ron Goldman's murders. We explored how Nicole suffered a long history of abuse at the hands of her ex-husband, NFL superstar O.J. Simpson. When police found O.J.'s blood at the scene of the crime and the presumed killer's glove was located at his estate, they charged him with the murders. This week, we'll recount O.J.'s eight-month criminal murder trial. We'll hear how prosecutors constructed a narrative of violent domestic assault and laid out their DNA evidence. Then, we'll explore the defense's arguments that O.J. Simpson was the victim of a racially motivated LAPD frame-up. On July 22, 1994, the courtroom was packed so tightly, few people could move or breathe. The press made sure to capture every moment. Police, lawyers, the accused, the judge, and the bailiff were framed in camera lenses and recorded by microphones. It was 47-year-old O.J. Simpson's arraignment. He was accused of murdering his ex-wife, 35-year-old Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, 25-year-old Ron Goldman, on June 12, 1994. A five-day-long investigation had led police right to him as their top suspect. It seemed like an open-and-shut case. But things got a lot more complicated when the judge asked for O.J.'s plea. He replied, absolutely, 100% not guilty. His refusal to strike a deal meant that O.J.'s lawyers, led by Robert Shapiro, and the state's attorneys, led by Marsha Clark, were about to put countless hours, days, weeks, and months into the Juices trial. And if the media storm around O.J.'s arrest and arraignment were any indication, they'd do so under immense journalistic scrutiny. Although it's traditional for cases to be tried in the jurisdiction where the crime is committed, prosecutors filed in downtown Los Angeles instead of Brentwood. 
They reasoned that the downtown courts were larger and could handle the throng of reporters who were sure to be on the scene. Besides, a mass rush of journalists, witnesses, and lawyers would only choke the West Side's already dire gridlock. Downtown seemed better equipped to absorb the increased traffic. The decision to file downtown did more than accommodate a media circus, however. It also affected the demographics of the juror pool. Brentwood, where O.J. Simpson lived and Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson died, was a predominantly upper-class white neighborhood. Downtown L.A. had a largely Latinx and black population. And when it came to the question of O.J.'s guilt, the public was split down racial lines. A July 1994 poll showed that nearly twice as many white respondents thought O.J. was guilty compared to black people polled. Black Angelinos were roughly three times more likely than white citizens to believe in O.J.'s innocence. These differences of opinion could be traced back to the recent racially charged controversies surrounding the LAPD, most notably the excessively forceful beating of Rodney King still sent shockwaves through the city. But the tension went back further than that. In 1982, a 20-year-old black man named James Mincy was pulled over for a broken windshield. During the course of the stop, police put James in a chokehold, killing him. The arresting officer later tried to justify his behavior as ordinary police procedure. When asked to comment on the officer's brutal use of force, police chief Daryl Gates only further stoked tensions. He said the move was more likely to kill black people than, quote, normal people. On March 16, 1991, 15-year-old black teenager Latasha Harlins got into an argument with grocery store employee Soon Ja Du. As Latasha turned to walk away from the fight, Soon fatally shot her in the back of the head. In spite of security footage documenting the homicide, Soon was acquitted. In July of that year, the Christopher Commission, chaired by Deputy Secretary of State Warren M. Christopher, reviewed more than 2,000 complaints of LAPD excessive force from the past four years. They found the police department had investigated fewer than 2% of those allegations. In addition, more than 200 officers had four or more charges, yet the majority had never been disciplined or even received a negative performance review. It was like the police refused to believe their brutality was a problem. Any of these cases would have been an outrage on their own. But as they played out, year after year, they depicted a pattern of racial bias within the Los Angeles criminal justice system. And this bias was certain to be a factor with whatever jury presided over O.J.'s case. In addition, studies have shown that jurors in death penalty cases tend to be more likely to convict. This is because courts will automatically dismiss anyone with a moral or ethical objection to capital punishment. Coincidentally, the sort of people who are statistically more likely to acquit. So when the city of Los Angeles announced it would not pursue the death penalty against O.J. Simpson, 
they once more hurt their chances of finding a jury predisposed towards a guilty verdict. In the end, 12 jurors were selected, along with another 15 alternates. The group was predominantly female and black. They were quickly sequestered to prevent media exposure. This proved wise, as the press coverage was already at a fever pitch. For roughly a year following O.J.'s arrest, more than a third of all ABC breaking news segments were about his case. Then, presiding judge Lance A. Ito made the unprecedented decision to permit TV cameras in the courtroom. He argued this was due to the public's right to know about the proceedings. But his ruling opened the door for more than 2,000 reporters, representing nearly 100 TV networks, to descend on downtown Los Angeles, each with their own story and spin. The journalistic frenzy was met with criticism from many who felt a grim murder was being sensationalized. While some tried to find a way to minimize the media's involvement, O.J. Simpson courted even more attention. Before the trial even began, he announced that he was releasing a book. The memoir, I Want to Tell You, detailed his mindset about Nicole's death. It was the first time O.J. had publicly commented on the murders other than to assert his innocence. But it's not like he needed to court the press. In the months leading up to the trial, they'd scrutinized every step, every comment, every move he made. Like when O.J. hired seven high-profile, accomplished, and expensive lawyers, in addition to Robert Shapiro. They were dubbed the Dream Team, a somewhat tongue-in-cheek reference to the superstar 1992 Olympic basketball team with the same nickname. Then, mere days before the trial began, the Dream Team reorganized. Attorney Johnny Cochran replaced Shapiro as lead counsel. The change was analyzed and reported upon breathlessly. Speculation ran rampant. Given the racial dynamics already at play, maybe O.J. wanted to have a black man defending him. Or perhaps Shapiro didn't really believe O.J. was innocent, so he was ousted. Possibly interpersonal feuds within the Dream Team had gotten out of hand. The official story was far less scandalous. Cochran had more courtroom experience than Shapiro, but the media kept drumming up increasingly salacious theories. The publicity, the book announcement, the celebrity, and the scandal. O.J.'s hearings hadn't even begun, and they were already being called the trial of the century. Up next, the prosecution presents physical evidence to try to prove that O.J. Simpson is a murderer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. 
Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. On January 24, 1995, the trial of the century was called to order. The 47-year-old defendant, O.J. Simpson, was represented by his dream team. At their urging, he insisted that he was not guilty of the June 12th murders of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. But the prosecutors, led by 41-year-old Marsha Clark, were committed to proving that he was the killer. And she laid out her theories in her opening statement. She said, When we look upon and look behind that public face, the man that you will see will be the face of a batterer, a wife-beater, an abuser, a controller. He killed Nicole for a single reason, a reason almost as old as mankind itself. He killed her out of jealousy. He killed her because he couldn't have her, and if he couldn't have her, he didn't want anybody else to have her. He killed her to control her. To bolster this narrative, the prosecution established O.J.'s history as a manipulative abuser. First, they played recordings of Nicole's 911 calls. The courtroom cringed at the sound of Nicole's screams, sobs, and wails of fear as she repeatedly told police that O.J. was threatening her, beating her, declaring that he'd kill her. Then, Nicole's sister, Denise Brown, took the stand. Tearfully, she discussed the years of emotional and physical abuse that O.J. had inflicted upon Nicole, abuse Denise had witnessed firsthand. She spoke of one instance when she, Nicole, and O.J. all had dinner together at a restaurant called The Red Onion. After drinks, O.J. allegedly grabbed Nicole by the crotch and announced, This is where babies come from, and this belongs to me. Denise recounted another occasion on which she confronted O.J. about his treatment of Nicole. She described how he flew into a rage, kicked Nicole out of the house, and then beat her before tossing her belongings from their bedroom. More than anything, though, Denise focused on O.J.'s rage and jealousy. She described him as a man who couldn't let go, who'd rather see his ex-wife dead than with another man. If Marsha Clark hoped these accounts of domestic assault would lead jurors to sympathize with Nicole, her efforts may have backfired. In the 1990s, spousal violence was still a taboo subject, and some jurors defaulted to blaming the victim. If it was really so bad, why didn't she leave? As juror number nine, Carrie Bess, explained, Let me tell you, I lose respect for any woman that takes a whooping when she don't have to. Others, like juror number two, Yolanda Crawford, observed, There's a connection with abuse, and could it lead to death? Sure, but I don't think the prosecution proved that. But establishing O.J. as violently abusive was only the first stage of the prosecution's strategy. They'd tried to demonstrate that O.J. had the motive, 
Now it was time to prove he had the opportunity and the means. They had ample physical evidence in the form of blood samples. O.J.'s DNA had been found at the scene of the crime, while Ron's and Nicole's had been at his mansion. It seemed clear that he'd killed them and then tracked their blood back home with him. But Clark worried that the jurors would have a hard time recognizing the significance of where the evidence was found. After all, there were two crime scenes, the condo on Bundy Drive, where Nicole and Ron were killed, and O.J.'s Rockingham Avenue house. Would the jury be able to track the various locations and understand the prosecution's narrative? The solution lay in a field trip. On February 12th, Marcia arranged for the jury to travel to Brentwood for a tour of Nicole's condo, Ron's apartment, the Metzaluna restaurant, and O.J.'s estate. Jurors traveled by bus with O.J., five reporters, a cameraman, and a photographer in tow. Their entourage featured three squad cars, 20 motorcycles, and four police helicopters. In addition, hundreds of officers and even a bomb-sniffing dog worked crowd control. The trip cost the city of Los Angeles thousands of dollars. But Johnny Cochran saw an opportunity in the outing he could construct a counter-narrative about who O.J. Simpson was as a person. After all, the tour was only supposed to establish the layout of the mansion and the grounds. There was no rule that precluded the Dream Team from redecorating. They removed photos from O.J.'s athletic glory days and replaced them with pictures of his mother and respected black celebrities. Cochran borrowed a Norman Rockwell painting from his office to hang over O.J.'s fireplace. For weeks, Marsha Clark had tried to depict O.J. Simpson as a violent abuser. But as they ushered the jury into the mansion on Rockingham Avenue on February 12th, they inadvertently introduced O.J., the family man, the upstanding member of the black community, the trustworthy defendant. The Dream Team's antics overshadowed everything else Marsha had been trying to prove with the trip. The proximity between the houses and how easily O.J. could have traveled between the two. The tour left prosecutors reeling, but they recovered quickly. They just had to refocus on the crux of their case, the physical evidence, the blood spatters, and the leather gloves found at each crime scene. And they introduced their star witness to present it to the jury, Officer Mark Furman. During his questioning, Furman focused only on the cold, hard facts. He testified that he'd been at Nicole's murder scene and had witnessed the bloody aftermath himself. Then he'd traveled to O.J.'s Rockingham estate to find what appeared to be a bloody smear on O.J. Simpson's white bronco. And he'd discovered one of the leather gloves with DNA that could be matched to O.J., Nicole, and Ron Goldman. Seemingly irrefutable. But defense attorney Lee Bailey had a hypothesis. He believed Furman was racist, and that that had biased him against O.J. from the start. 
he goaded Furman to either confess to his alleged bigotry or lie to hide it. If nothing else, the latter would damage his credibility as a witness. Bailey began, Do you use the N-word when describing people? Furman replied, No, sir. Bailey continued, Have you used that word in the past 10 years? Again, Furman answered in the negative. It was the first hint of the defense's main argument that O.J. had been framed. Racist police officers had planted the airtight DNA evidence on the Rockingham estate and Nicole's condo specifically to bring the black NFL star down. The press was quick to dismiss Bailey's claims. The New York Times declared, for three days, the 61-year-old Mr. Bailey went at Mr. Furman. By the time Mr. Furman stepped down, the consensus was that, for all his noises beforehand, the last roar of the lion was really more of a meow. The Washington Post added, Bailey has sought to show through cross-examination that Furman had both the motive and opportunity for a frame-up. Bailey has suggested that Furman was an emotionally unstable racist. Bailey finished with Furman quickly today, scoring no obvious points for the defense. But to a black community still nursing the wounds of Rodney King and other racially motivated police violence, Bailey's narrative seemed all too credible. Marsha Clark's prosecutorial team tried to redirect the focus from racial bias back to the DNA evidence on April 3rd. That day, they interviewed Dennis Fung, LAPD's criminologist. He testified about evidence collection procedures at the crime scenes. His arguments seemed logical, well-reasoned, and fair, at least until defense attorney Barry Sheck began his cross-examination. After bantering about evidence-gathering procedure, Sheck asked if it was possible Dennis might have contaminated some of that DNA evidence. Had he handled any samples with his bare hands instead of using gloves? Dennis assured the courtroom, I would try not to. Sheck turned the conversation to a particular item, a white envelope with a bloody footprint on it. He asked, did you touch that envelope with your bare hands while collecting it, Mr. Fung? Dennis again responded, no. Calmly, Sheck played a video for the court. It was footage from a news report about Nicole's death, and the clip clearly showed Dennis, with his bare hands, grabbing the white envelope. Not only did Sheck demonstrate that the DNA results may not be credible, he'd also proven that Dennis was unreliable. As easily as that, another prosecution witness was discredited. But the defense took things one step further, beyond mishandled evidence. Their next line of questioning accused the LAPD of framing O.J. Simpson. Once again, Sheck played video footage during Dennis's cross-examination. A news clip recorded on June 13, 1994, included shots of a white, swinging gate outside of Nicole Brown Simpson's condo. The gate was clean, no traces of blood whatsoever. 
But three weeks after the murder, Dennis had identified a droplet on that gate and collected a sample. The eventual lab results suggested the blood was OJ's. Sheck asked why it had taken Dennis so long to find and gather the evidence. Dennis theorized that sloppy detective work might have led examiners to miss it until that point. But then why did so much news footage show the pristine gate free of blood spatter? Dennis didn't have an explanation, but Sheck was happy to supply one. The droplet must have appeared after those videos were recorded, which meant it had been planted. Up next, the defense poses their case, and the jurors deliberate on O.J.'s alleged guilt. Now, back to the story. 47-year-old O.J. Simpson's murder trial began on January 24, 1995. From day one, prosecutors presented a wealth of DNA evidence linking him to Ron Goldman's and Nicole Brown Simpson's murders. However, their witness, Mark Furman, was accused of racial bias, and criminologist Dennis Fung was proven to have mishandled evidence. But Marsha Clark's team still had one ace up their sleeve, the leather gloves. One had been found at Nicole's murder scene, the other at O.J.'s mansion. Both were soaked in blood that matched O.J.'s, Nicole's, and Ron Goldman's DNA. But prosecutor Christopher Darden worried that the Dream Team would undermine the validity of the gloves, just like they'd already discredited the two LAPD witnesses. Compounding his fears, he caught Robert Shapiro handling the gloves during a recess and accused the defense attorney of tampering with the evidence. Shapiro confessed that he'd tried on the gloves, but Darden feared that he'd torn the inner lining ensuring they'd never fit on O.J.'s hands again. He approached Marsha with his concerns. What if the defense asked O.J. to try on the gloves and he wasn't able to, demonstrating that they weren't his? Darden wanted to get ahead of their demonstration. They should ask O.J. to try them on before his attorneys could coach him. Marsha disagreed with that logic. She thought they'd be better suited making reasonable arguments for why O.J.'s leather gloves might no longer fit him. Since the murder, they'd shrunk, thanks to all the blood that had permeated the leather, plus the year in which they hadn't been used. Also, O.J.'s knuckles might have swelled from arthritis flare-ups. She ordered Christopher, on no uncertain terms, to stick to the facts and to keep the gloves far away from O.J. But Christopher couldn't let go of his idea, and the Dream Team knew it. Cochran even brought the gloves up several times in conversation, hoping to goad the prosecutor into making a mistake. He encouraged fellow lawyer F. Lee Bailey to approach Christopher during a recess. Bailey said... If you had any nuts at all, you'd make O.J. try on that glove. If you don't have him try on the glove, we will. All the taunting finally got under Christopher's skin. On June 15, 1995, he declared, 
Your Honor, at this time, the people would ask that Mr. Simpson step forward and try on the glove recovered at Bundy as well as the glove recovered at Rockingham. It was a jarring break from the strategy he'd earlier set with Marcia, but in the courtroom that day, under the lenses of dozens of news cameras, he had a lapse of judgment. He later explained, I let him put those gloves on. Why not? They're his gloves. First, O.J. Simpson slipped on a pair of latex gloves so as not to contaminate the evidence. This also made his hands marginally thicker. Then he slid the right leather glove over his fingers. It hit the middle of his palm and stopped. Too tight. Grimacing with effort, O.J. rose to his feet. He tugged at the leather. Then he paced across the courtroom as he fumbled with the left glove. It also was too small. Finally, he stopped and held up his hands. The gloves didn't fit. After yet another embarrassment, the prosecution rested on July 6, 1995. Now that the seeds of doubt had been planted in the jurors' minds, the Dream Team got to reap what they'd sown. And it didn't take long to lay out their own case, that racially biased police officers had framed O.J. for Nicole's murder. To further bolster this theory, prosecutors turned attention back to Officer Furman. It had been five months since he'd sworn, under oath, that he'd never used the N-word. But Cochran called a screenwriter named Laura Hart McKinney to the stand. She testified that she'd recorded a series of interviews with Furman while researching a script about detective work, and she'd recorded him using the racial slur multiple times during those sessions. O.J.'s lawyers played the clips from those 11 hours of recorded interviews, covering the 40 times he used the racial slur. Other choice selections included Furman detailing how he might frame a suspect. For instance, quote, you don't need probable cause, you're God. And, quote, the police could have murdered people and got away with it. We were tight. We all knew what to say. Not only had Furman perjured himself, he'd admitted on tape that he'd framed suspects and covered up crimes as a police officer. And attorney F. Lee Bailey wasn't going to stop until every person in that courtroom and every TV viewer at home recognized that fact. On September 5th, when Furman returned to the stand, Bailey asked, Detective Furman, was the testimony that you gave at the preliminary hearing in this case completely truthful? Furman glanced at his lawyer, who was seated at his side for the questioning. Then he pled the fifth. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution grants American citizens the right not to incriminate themselves. If a person is asked a question that could get them in legal trouble, like if they're caught lying under oath, the witness may decline to answer, instead citing the fifth. In theory, judges and juries aren't supposed to hold a plea to the Fifth Amendment against a witness. 
but in practice, it can be hard to ignore the implications of such a refusal. When Bailey asked, have you ever falsified a police report? Furman pled the fifth again. He even announced that he wouldn't be answering any further questions. Nevertheless, Bailey asked just one more. Detective Furman, did you plant or manufacture any evidence in this case? Mark Furman pled the fifth. It was yet another massive win for the Dream Team. When the trial had begun, Prosecutor Marsha Clark probably thought her case was a touchdown, but now it looked like she'd fumbled. Yet it wasn't too late to overcome the missteps, the discredited witnesses, and the questions about the authenticity of the evidence. She delivered a Hail Mary with her closing statements on September 26th and 27th, 1995. Marcia spoke with confidence, emphasizing the sheer volume of evidence pointing to O.J.'s guilt. She said, When you think about reasonable doubt, you talk about something that's missing that you need to believe that the defendant is guilty. And in that sense, I compare it to a jigsaw puzzle. In order to get the picture, to know what a jigsaw puzzle is depicting, if you're missing a couple pieces of the sky, you still have the picture. She laid out each piece of evidence, fitting them together into a narrative of O.J.'s guilt. The DNA results, the bloody clothes, the history of abuse, she emphasized her confidence that O.J. Simpson was guilty, and that was the verdict the jury must return. Defense attorney Johnny Cochran, in turn, focused on all the holes in the prosecution's arguments. He talked about the police mishandling of evidence, the LAPD's alleged corruption, and, of course, O.J.'s struggles to get the bloody gloves onto his hands. He quipped, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. But his closing was about more than sound bites. He also reframed the entire trial. He asserted that it was about something bigger than O.J. Simpson, Ron Goldman, or Nicole Brown Simpson. It was an indictment of the LAPD and its racially charged history of targeting black Angelinos. He described Mark Furman as a man driven by bigotry, who'd intentionally planted evidence at O.J.'s house solely to frame a black celebrity. He said, There was another man not too long ago in this world who had those same views, who wanted to burn people, who had racist views, and ultimately had power over people in his country. This man, this scourge, became one of the worst people in the world, Adolf Hitler. Cochran argued that there was just one way for jurors to stand up against creeping racial injustice, to find O.J. Simpson not guilty. Those words may have hung over the jurors' heads as they entered deliberations. They had to decide O.J.'s fate based not only on the racial narrative Cochrane had presented, but on eight months' worth of witness testimonies, evidence, and arguments. It was a mass of information to pick through. 
Yet it took the jurors only four hours to reach a decision. On October 3, 1995, at 10 a.m., lawyers, judge, jury, O.J., and of course dozens of reporters filed into the courtroom in downtown Los Angeles to hear the verdict. Across the nation, 140 million people tuned in to the live broadcasts. They comprised about 90% of the total television viewership at the time. An entire nation held its breath as court clerk Deirdre Robertson rose to her feet and declared O.J. Simpson not guilty. The verdict cut through Marsha Clark. The pain she felt was physical. For years afterward, she was haunted by what she saw as a gross miscarriage of justice. Meanwhile, as his dream team celebrated around him, O.J. must have been overcome with relief. It's hard to say if he'd ever really believed he'd get off, whether he'd made any kinds of plans for his new life as a free man. Later on, in one of his first interviews after his acquittal, O.J. explained where he planned to go from there. He promised he would find the real killer. As of early 2020, O.J. hasn't yet produced a viable suspect. But that doesn't mean Ron's and Nicole's deaths haven't stayed on his mind. In 1997, two years after the criminal case, 49-year-old O.J. went to court on homicide charges again, this time in a civil suit from Nicole's and Ron's families. And the new tribunal heard an almost entirely new case. First, unlike during the criminal hearing, Judge Hiroshi Fujisaki didn't permit cameras in the courtroom, nor did he allow the defense team to spin narratives about police conspiracies. The plaintiffs presented evidence that had never been heard before this case. They matched a bloody footprint at the crime scene to a pair of limited edition size 12 Bruno Mai shoes. Only 200 pairs had ever been sold, and OJ owned one of them. But even without the new arguments, OJ would have found that the odds in this case weren't in his favor. In criminal cases, juries are instructed to only find the defendant guilty if they're convinced beyond a reasonable doubt. That means that even if the juror thinks the defendant is maybe guilty, or even probably guilty, they must still acquit if any question remains. But in civil cases, the scales are more balanced. Plaintiffs have to convince jurors that the defendant is more than 50% likely to have committed the crime. That means defendants have to do more than suggest doubt. They must prove their innocence, something he wasn't able to do this time around. On February 4, 1997, the courts found O.J. liable for Nicole's and Ron's murders and sentenced him to pay nearly $35 million in damages, today the equivalent of over $55 million. Not only did the ruling bankrupt him, all of the infamy around the murders limited his ability to make any kind of income. 
No movie studio or sports channel wanted to employ the man believed by much of the nation to be a murderer. And in the years since, the specter of the homicide charges has followed him. O.J. has even invited attention, like in 2006, when he announced he would publish his book, If I Did It. The speculative true crime story detailed how O.J. might have murdered Nicole and Ron and disposed of the evidence afterward. In interviews, he's insisted that the book just explores hypotheticals. But in the eyes of many, including Ron Goldman's sister, Kim Goldman, it's a confession. And he hasn't managed to avoid legal trouble since then, either. On September 13, 2007, 60-year-old O.J. Simpson and several other men burst into a Las Vegas hotel room and seized the sports memorabilia inside at gunpoint. The goods had previously belonged to O.J., but had been sold in an auction to cover his legal expenses. However, in the juice's mind, these items, including his Heisman Trophy, were still rightfully his. He was just taking them back. However, juries saw his actions as armed robbery and kidnapping. He was sentenced to 9 to 33 years in prison. Many believed the harsh penalty stemmed from the court's desire to counterbalance what they saw as a wrongful acquittal more than a decade prior. Whether he did it or not, the violent deaths of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman have colored O.J. Simpson's legacy. Today, he's as infamous for being an accused murderer as he once was for an 11-year football career and a spot in the NFL Hall of Fame. The media frenzy around his case ensured that he'd never outlive the allegations and rumors. He's not the only person whose life was changed by the coverage of the case. O.J.'s lead lawyer, Robert Shapiro, became a frequent guest on television news and an author. He also co-founded the website LegalZoom.com. Another of O.J.'s lawyers, Johnny Cochran, became a television personality, frequently appearing on programs like The Howard Stern Show. He also published an autobiography. Marsha Clark retired from the law, but became a prolific author, penning four fictional novels in addition to her memoir. She does, however, continue to cooperate with the news media as a legal advisor. Even Officer Mark Furman managed to leverage a media career out of the O.J. Simpson trial. After his felony conviction for perjury, he became a contributor for Fox News and a radio host. Their later careers as pop culture figures just points to one of the most controversial elements of O.J. Simpson's case. In the quarter century since his acquittal, many have asked whether it's possible for justice to be served when the line between the court system and celebrity culture gets blurred. The trial also brought more attention to issues of domestic violence, due in part to the prosecution's heavy emphasis on Nicole's history with O.J. and her harrowing 911 recordings. During the case, 
Domestic violence support lines saw a sharp spike in reports as victims finally felt empowered to talk about their experiences. Thanks to 1994's Violence Against Women Act, funding was poured into programs for legal assistance and support to survivors of abuse, stalking, or sexual assault. OJ's trial also served as a lightning rod for discussions of the LAPD's relations with the black community and other people of color. In the more than 20 years since the verdict, Los Angeles police have repeatedly come under fire. Recently, a review of data from 2015 revealed that the LAPD was the deadliest police force in the United States. This study launched a larger discussion of police brutality, a conversation that continues through movements like Black Lives Matter. Ask anyone today about the O.J. Simpson trial, and you're likely to hear a lot of opinions. Everyone has thoughts about how it relates to issues of celebrity, media coverage, domestic abuse, and race. In all the discussion, two phrases are rarely mentioned— Two phrases that should be at the heart of the case, but were easily overshadowed by the media discourse. Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown Simpson. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. This is our last episode for a while as we're going on a hiatus. If you enjoy stories about crime and how prosecutors seek to bring suspects to justice, be sure to check out our shows Unsolved Murders and Serial Killers. And if you liked this episode's discussions of celebrity, athletics, and illegal activities, be sure to listen to Sports Criminals on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Not Guilty, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Angela Jorgensen with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.